Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This past Wednesday, StatsCan announced that the inflation rate had jumped to 7.7% in May. This reading is the largest increase in the Consumer Price Index since January 1983. On the same day as this shocking inflation statistic was released, a Yahoo Canada Maru survey revealed that a majority of Canadians fear that we are headed toward a recession and that 56% of respondents felt the central bank's interest rate increases to try and tame inflation were to blame. Kelly Keane is an expert on all things money, having spent years as a personal finance educator and financial professional. Kelly Keane is also an award-winning best-selling author and a member of several financial watchdog organizations like the Ontario Securities Commission's Senior Expert Advisory Committee. She is here to help. Kelly, thank you for joining us on the feed. We need you. <laughs> Oh, so great to be with you, Anne. I wish uh, it was under not so dire circumstances, but that is the fact of what a lot of Canadians are are dealing with right now. So the headline is that the May inflation rate jumped to 7.7%. What does that mean to the average individual, someone like myself? I think the average individual is rolling their eyes when they hear that number because they're like, come on, if you filled up your gas tank, if you've gone grocery shopping, if you've paid any of your um, bills recently, you know that it's a lot higher than 7.7%. So um, that is the consumer price index. It's this basket of items that the government uses as a measure. But, you know, gas prices are up over 40%. Groceries, they're saying, stats can is saying 10%. I mean, we're all, I, I don't know about you, but I went to buy a, a bag of avocados last week and it was up 100%. So um, we're feeling it. And what it means is, that our money is not going as far. Things obviously are costing more and wage wages just are not increasing uh, to keep up with even just that number of 7.7%, which again, we're feeling a lot higher than that. The central bank uh, is increasing rates uh, at quite a rate and apparently there will be another, and it could be even 75 basis points in July. Why does the increasing of interest rates seem to work to tame inflation, or does it? Yeah, okay. So this is a a very complex conversation because um, our Bank of Canada, our central bank, its mandate is to keep inflation around 2 to 3%. So inflation's been low for a very long time. They really haven't had to make big moves with interest rates. But as we're seeing inflation creep up so rapidly um, because of not just uh, you know, um, supply chain issues, meaning things aren't aren't getting to us. So, you know, that's increasing demand, but also what's called supply side. So things aren't being produced. There's a war in Ukraine. Food is being hurt. It's really important that people understand all of this. So the Bank of Canada, you know, as they raise interest rates up, that cools down what people are spending money on, hopefully, and uh, ideally should get inflation down. Now, here's, here's the challenge for the Bank of Canada is a lot of this inflation is happening all over the world. You know, we're coming out of a global pandemic. And the question is, what is the Bank of Canada's moves with, you know, rising interest rates? 
is that really going to help the average Canadian when, you know, a lot of our goods don't come from Canada? Uh, so, so that's, uh, you know, that's the big question mark for our, our government, but also, you know, central banks all over the world. And how does the Bank of Canada, how do the central banks around the world stop from moving into a recession? It, there seems to be a concern when you can increase interest rates as rapidly and as large as they have been in the U.S. and, and possibly a big one in July in Canada. How do you prevent a recession? Well, and I'm not an economist, so, you know, I think that the, the number one mandate of the Bank of Canada is to curb inflation. And if that causes a recession, I mean, that's their mandate. And yes, that's all we're hearing all day long in the news is, you know, a company starting to tighten their belts. I mean, you know, we've heard for, for what are we, we sitting in just about July, you know, we've heard for so long that, you know, workers can demand more. Um, we have the lowest unemployment number since, I believe, 1976. It's really, you know, a job seekers market. But if we do move into that, you know, recessionary territory, um, you know, what does that mean for jobs? What does that mean for Canadians already hit so hard? And, you know, there was that Manulife survey a couple of weeks ago that one in four Canadians were saying that they may have to sell their home if interest rates keep going up. And with that July 13th announcement with the Bank of Canada, as you said, you know, just about three quarters of a percent is what we're being warned. Um, this is presenting a very challenging time for a lot of Canadians. And that survey also revealed how many people don't realize or don't really even understand, like, what inflation means, how it affects interest rates. So it's just such an important time to start to learn the basics about um, something that, you know, uh, many of us have never had to deal with. You know, it's interesting. Inflation affects interest rates, but interest rates, uh, they're hoping, will affect inflation. So it's almost like a vicious circle. And we're in the middle of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's only so much that, that any any central bank can do because it really is supply and demand. So a lot of the criticism as well has been on the government and their, you know, their spending plans. Putting more money in people's pockets also means that there's more money to spend. Hmm. So um, that's also a little bit of a vicious circle as well. I mean, obviously, people need a tax break. You know, Biden is calling for the, the gas um, tax holiday uh, you know, what will what will our government do um, as far as giving people a break? Is it just going to be more handouts? Um, you know, I think everyone is kind of appealed to how to make life more affordable. I mean, the, the, the sad fact is that, I mean, people are skipping meals. There's a good portion of our population that this isn't just like, oh, do I go on a vacation this summer or, you know, run over the kitchen? It's like, can they put food on the table for them and their family? And that is heartbreaking. So let's keep this on a very personal level. What is your best advice when it comes to coping with the effects of inflation? We as Canadian citizens doing the best we can to put food on the table, to earn a living, to keep a roof over our heads. How do we cope with rising inflation? Yeah, there's really only two things that you can do in any financial situation, and that's cut or bring in more. Hmm. So, you, you know, you, I, I hate talking about cutting. I don't like the B word budgets, but this is the time that you really have to look at your finances with a fine tooth comb. And here's the reality is when things are stressful, when we're stressed, and especially when we're financially stressed, our, literally our vision narrows. We cannot see the possibilities out there. So if you are super stressed, creditors are calling, 
um, you know, you're in a dire situation, you need to reach out for a help. You want to talk to someone like a nonprofit credit counselor, talk to your bank. Like if you're a mortgage holder, for example, you're in good standing. You can actually skip a payment one full month each year without any penalty. That could put thousands of dollars into your pocket. Um, you know, if you haven't filed your taxes recently, like getting creative uh, with, you know, there's so many creative ideas. People are carpooling. They're, you know, um, bringing in a roommate. Now, some of these things aren't aren't ideal. I get it. And it's not maybe where you want to be and what you want to do, but it's not going to be like this forever. But I really like talking about the other side of the ledger and bringing in more income. Yes. And 30% of Canadians had a side hustle during the pandemic. You know, this is a great time to, to look at, you know, what can you do to bring in a few hundred dollars more a, a month or, or even thousands? Like, you know, it might be a second job. It might be a side hustle. There's a lot of opportunities out there, regardless if we go into a recession or not. But if you don't even ask that question of you and your family, you're probably not even going to think about that. So trying to get out of that apathetic state, try to be positive and hopeful and, and, and look at your finances, see where you can trim any fat, but also asking the question, where can we bring in more? You know, a very specific question I have for you, everybody listening right now, and it's, it's you know, across Canada, around the world, and right here in York Region, they have families, and the kids are going to be out of school and wanting to do things this summer. Where do people, where do parents, where do families find the money during these inflationary times with the threat of a recession to give the kids a kind of summer that they deserve now that many of the pandemic restrictions have been lifted. Yeah, and I mean, that is really heartbreaking, right? Like saying no to your kids and, and, and not being able to afford summer camp. But I mean, uh, you know, on a positive side, there I'm hearing from so many people that are like making it a challenge. They're like, okay, what can we do that's super fun and doesn't cost a lot of money? And, you know, maybe getting like a wear magazine and being a tourist in your, your mm-hmm. city, in your region. Uh, like, you know, like getting back to the basics of sometimes we feel that we have to throw money at things to, you know, make our, and I do it. I mean, I was raised by a single mom. She was raising us with three kids and I always want to just buy her stuff, you yeah. know? And at the end of the day, she's like, you know what I want? I want your time and yeah. for you to put your phone away. And <laughs> that's really what she wants, you know, to cook a meal together and go to a park together and go for a walk. So I think sometimes we have to remember that we want to erase this pandemic and, and, and make, you know, square up with our kids, everything that they suffered through. But sometimes they just want your time and they just yeah. want your, you know, have some fun with them. And, and that does not have to involve um, any money sometimes. I love your mom. Put your phone away. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> Many mothers and fathers echo that around the world. What about people on a fixed income? And there are plenty of those. We think about our marvelous seniors. How do they manage through these difficult times? Well, and it's super tough for them. Um, you know, we're seeing a little reprieve, let's say, in indexing of OAS, old age security, and guaranteed income supplements, but not much. Like, yeah. it's not keeping up with inflation, that's for sure. And, you know, senior-specific inflation it surrounds food, right? That's what most seniors are spending their money on, and, and that's storing. So, I think it's just, you know, maybe getting creative, uh, doing potlucks together, uh, talking with your neighbors, helping, you know, share. But the reality is, I mean, even food banks can't keep up. Like, yeah. right. It, we're hearing these heartbreaking stories. And so I think uh, it, it's really important for us that are, you know, a little bit younger 
to understand that a lot of seniors are suffering. Just like in the wintertime and a bad winter, you know, us Canadians all get together and, and shovel the, the sidewalks and help out our seniors. So this is the time to help them out with some meals, with some groceries, check in on them, see if they're suffering financially. And if you're not, if you can help out, uh, you know, uh, and of course, donating to your local food bank is essential as well. You know, I hearken back to when I was growing up and all of my friends and we, we all kind of use the bank of mom and dad. And maybe now it's time to give back to our parents if we still have them, thankfully, if there is a little bit extra in your piggy bank to give back to your parents when they gave so much to us as we were growing up. Absolutely. And that's such a great point, Anne. And and I think, too, what I find with a lot of seniors that I talk to is, you know, even if they have the money, they're usually scared to spend or came from very frugal um, beginnings. So, you know, it's, it's also maybe helping your parents spend, like you said, giving back. Remember, they're a very proud, proud generation, very hard to take money from their kids. So, yeah, anything that you can do to help uh, to support them, um, you know, make it fun, uh, get them gift cards, whatever it is. But mm-hmm. this is, yeah, a great time to remember that that um, are, are these people that don't have an ability generally to earn income, we need to be there to support them. Great advice on how to cope with these challenging times with inflationary pressure. Here's the big question. How do we and should we prepare for a recession? Well, you need, uh, you know, for speaking general population, mm-hmm. this is where you need to be recession proof. And so I'm going to look at, you know, uh, the most, the two most important factors. Number one, your emergency savings account. This is the thing that's going to get you through. And that's what got a lot of people through the pandemic if they could. So if you don't have one, you've depleted it. This is job number one for you and your family. Get those emergency reserves, um, you know, piled up. If you are, you know, a a traditional employee, ask your your workplace if they have a pay yourself first program where they can actually take it off your check so you're not even seeing it. That definitely helps. And then, you know, really looking again to your career as an asset class, like even if you earn the average income, you're earning millions of dollars in your lifetime. So like have the lens of almost like a business person. Your career is like a business. How can you upgrade your skills? How can you, um, you know, be recession proof? Is it time to, to volunteer to get some other skills? Um, you know, LinkedIn learning has some great resources, the library. This is a time to really double down on making yourself invaluable because regardless of a recession or not, um, you know, a great employee is always a great employee and will always be in high demand. So, you know, really looking at that you are an asset. What are you doing to make sure that you're, you know, upgrading your skills and, and um, you know, you're, you're uh, being valuable to your employer? Wow. You have ignited a, a fire in me. And I think everybody listening right now, I'm going to take charge. And I can't thank you enough for your positivity, but for your realistic view of what's going on right now in this country in terms of inflation and the threat of a recession, but also on a global scale, personal finance educator and financial professional, award-winning, best-selling author, and really cool person. Kelly Keene, thank you for joining us on the feed. Really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm Tina Cortez. As Anne mentioned, the inflation rate hit 7.7%. A new Ipsos survey suggests Canadians are worried. To break down the results, Gregory Jack is Ipsos VP of Public Affairs. Welcome to the feed, Gregory. 
Thank you. Um, good afternoon. Can we start with affordability and income levels? These two issues topped Canadians' concerns. Yeah, I mean, what we what we found on this survey is that um, inflationary pressures are really pinching Canadians from coast to coast. There is a lot of concern around everything from being able to afford a summer vacation to literally putting food on the table. And while there are some demographic differences in those data, all Canadians are concerned to a certain extent about the rising cost of living. Absolutely. And obviously, we all are at this point. Six in 10 Canadians worried about feeding their families. What can you tell us about those results? Well, one thing I can I can tell you is that this is pretty consistent uh, from data we had three months ago. This is not a new issue. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> as you pointed out, Stats Canada released their inflation numbers today. And 7.7% inflation, which is the highest number since 1983. Food prices have gone up about 9%, a little bit more than 9%. And gas prices, which uh, affect everything from uh, travel to supply chains to transportation, uh, are almost up 50%. So we we see a lot of areas where Canadians are are being affected by the increasing uh, cost of living. And food prices are certainly one of them. And that's not a a nice-to-have. That's a must-have. And that's why we see a lot of concern around Canadians uh, worrying about how they're going to put food on the table, especially those with kids. Absolutely. Now, thinking about summer plans, it seems a little bit frivolous, but we're just coming out of a pandemic. People are looking forward to making summer plans. What did the survey tell you about what folks are thinking in that regard? Well, you know, like I said, they they are worried about not being able to afford a summer holiday. Um, Among those with kids, that's seven in ten. And of course, if you have kids, you're probably uh, planning holidays for for multiple people. Um, Those that have kids, though, they're also worried, 52% uh, worried about not being able to take a summer vacation. So that's one of the things that Canadians might choose to defer uh, until later on, even though there is, as you say, uh, pent-up demand to travel, and we've seen massive delays at airports and um, a lot of a lot of people wanting to get out. Uh, that is one of the things that I would say people might choose to defer if it means a question between or a decision between taking a vacation or paying the bills and putting food on the table. What did the data show in terms of workers looking to change roles or careers? We we do see uh, a higher level of, of folks who are uh, reporting that they're asking for a raise. Four in ten Canadians actually said that they um, are asking their boss for a higher raise this year. Uh, due to inflation, but we also see a willingness to to make a change, right? Um, three in 10 Canadians said that they would consider changing jobs. That's actually higher among women uh, who are, are more active in uh, in making that move. And one of the things that the survey shows is that, you know, Canadians with a lower level of education and a lower level of income are, are more concerned. This is not surprising. Um, and they're also a little bit more bullish on, on asking for um, a, a raise or, or looking around to change jobs. So people are taking matters into their own hands a little bit by trying to increase the amount of money in their pockets. Of course, ironically, um, you know, this is one of the things that fuels inflation. If everybody gets a raise, then we're going to perpetuate the cycle of increasing uh, costs. But people are taking you know, measures to, to protect themselves and, and make sure they can pay the bills. And they're also looking to governments to uh, to help them out as well. And will salaries be able to keep up with inflation? I, I think people have uh, a real concern about that. Um, a lot of folks in our poll uh, didn't feel that their salary was going to keep up with inflation. And of course, um, inflation just keeps going up. So that, that number is going to continue to change. But that is one of the worries that people have is that their, their take-home pay is not going to 
keep pace with the rising cost of food, the rising cost of fuel, uh, and the rising cost of other necessities, even even things like um, you know vacations. The other thing that is happening, of course, is that we're coming out of the pandemic about two and a half years uh, out since then. A lot of people have been working from home. And as you may know, companies are starting to ask them to come back to the office, to come back to physical workspaces. And so that's going to increase costs as well because you've got uh, transportation costs for commuting. You've got um, <clears throat> even smaller costs like lunches or, or um, work clothes and that sort of thing. So there, there is definitely uh, a desire on the part of Canadians to continue some of the benefits from the pandemic of working at home for the flexibility. But I think part of that is also driven by um, the higher cost of having to commute and go into the office that they're now facing with uh, inflationary pressures being where they are. And were the findings different for young people compared to perhaps older or retired Canadians? It, it certainly is different. I mean, as I said, this is something that is affecting all Canadians. And so we, we see very stark numbers in terms of levels of concern, well over 50% in most cases. But um, it's the, the people in their prime working years, those between the ages of 35 and 54, who are more likely to have a mortgage, so they're more likely potentially to be affected by interest rates. They're more likely to have kids. Uh, they're the most worried. Younger Canadians between 18 and 34, they're also worried. Um, and and they're, they're, one, they're the group that is most willing to consider changing jobs. Now, older Canadians, the boomers, uh, they're less worried because potentially, you know, they might not have a mortgage anymore to have to worry about. They might not have kids at home to have to worry about. And they might not be working. But the challenge for them is, in some cases, they're on a fixed income that is certainly not keeping pace with inflation. So uh, each demographic has their, their own reasons for being concerned. As we wrap things up, how would you summarize the findings overall? How does it compare to previous surveys? I, I would say this is a once-in-a-lifetime event uh, for a lot of people. You know, you, you have to be, anyone under 40 years old doesn't remember the, the time when we had this kind of inflation and interest rates rising. This is not like the 2008 uh, stock meltdown. This is not like the 2000.com bubble bursting. Uh, <clears throat> this is something that is happening, you know, across the board and is affecting a lot of people. And for, for many of them, especially the younger Canadians that I mentioned, this is the first time in their life they're seeing this. So they might not be as prepared to, to deal with it as maybe their, their parents or the baby boomers are because they, they've been there before. But they're going to have to deal with it anyway. And, uh, and this is, you know, a really unique situation that has been caused by a number of factors, including the, the conflict in Ukraine and um, increased government stimulus throughout, uh, throughout the pandemic. And also just, uh, you know, a pent-up demand to do all of the things that we talked about, like traveling. That's pushing prices up as well. So lots of factors going into this. Uh, this is a unique event, and we're going to have to see how it goes. We started our conversation about the fact that Canadians are worried. Were the respondents optimistic at all? I mean, we, we, we didn't necessarily um, you know, measure future optimism on this survey, but I can tell you from other work that there, there is a certain level of optimism among Canadians right now, especially as we go into the summer. Uh, they want to get out there. They feel like we're coming out of the pandemic. There, there's been a little bit of a disconnect between people's own personal economic sense of uh, well-being and where they think the country is going. They, they're actually a little bit more optimistic about their own personal situation than they are about the country. But that doesn't mean they're optimistic. They're, they're, there is a large level of concern and expectations, you know, and you hear this from uh, experts and CEOs and, and others in the media, expectations that we might be facing a recession or even some stagflation coming forward where, uh, you know, we, we have a double whammy. And interest rates going up, the, the, the inflation rate today that the stats can uh, announce 
is probably going to apply more pressure on the Bank of Canada to increase the, the baseline interest rate more rapidly. So uh, there's dark clouds on the horizon. But, you know, Canadians are resilient, and we'll get through this just like we, we got through other crises. Absolutely. Gregory Jack from Ipsos, thank you for your time, and thank you for breaking down this survey for us. My pleasure. After the break, banning single-use plastics. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. By the end of 2023, companies will be banned from importing or producing plastic bags, straws, stir sticks, and takeout containers. Kevin Frankish now with the EnviroFacts from Greenpeace Canada. Now, it sounds like we're doing the responsible thing for our planet, or are we? Sarah King is head of the Oceans and Plastics campaign at Greenpeace Canada, joins me now from Vancouver. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. So it seemed like a big deal, and it, it seemed like they were really trying with this ban. Is it enough? Unfortunately, it's not enough. It's definitely a critical step forward um, and a necessary step. But when we think about all the types of single-use plastics uh, you know, that we encounter in our daily life, that are ending up in the environment, that are clogging our waste streams, we really uh, were hoping to see a, a ban on more items and also an, a focus to cut overall production of plastic to try to reduce the amount that's flowing into our communities. Let's put together your public enemies list. What's public enemy number one that's not included in that ban? In terms of the plastic items? Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about the top uh, polluting items uh, that we're seeing in Canada, but also globally, um, some people may be surprised to learn that plastic bottles um, are, are high up on the list. Uh, cigarette filters are a big one. Beverage cups and lids are a big one. Um, and increasingly, wrappers and pouches, um, particularly, uh, you know, candy wrappers and, and those kinds of things are becoming increasingly popular. So, you know, it's essentially like everything that we're using in our daily lives, because there's so much of it, um, we're finding that it's increasingly leaking into the environment. You know what blew me away? I found out a few weeks ago that the gum we chew has plastic in it. Yeah, you know, plastic is hiding in a lot of things that we wouldn't expect. You know, a lot of our clothing, our furniture, um, you know, kids' stuffed animals. It's just, it's everywhere. Um, tea bags is another one that people are often surprised to hear about. Uh, yeah, tea bags. Yeah. Not my natural peppermint tea. <laughs> it might be. It might be. You really have to do the pull apart test of the tea bags, and that's how you can tell if there's plastic. What do you mean? The, what do you mean the pull apart test? So take your tea bag and slowly um, sort of tear it apart, and mm -hmm. if if it's plastic, you'll be able to see the sad. fibers, the, sort of the shimmery fibers. You know, at times like this, too, I, I often ask myself, well, what does it matter that the government has a ban? How much are we placing on the government to make our choices for us? I mean, I am perfectly capable of not buying a, a water in a plastic bottle. I'm perfectly capable of checking to see if my tea bags have plastic in them. Do you think maybe that, that 
we don't police ourselves enough? You know, I think so much of the focus has actually been on the consumer to try to recycle properly and figure out what to do with plastic. So much of it you can't avoid. You know, we can all obviously make choices to get a to-go cup or to, you know, bring your own cup. But when we're going to the grocery store um, and we're trying to get just goods that we need to feed our families, it's actually really, really difficult uh, to dodge plastic. And so it's really been on us to figure out, well, what do we do with all this waste? And that's why, because, you know, we're in now a global pollution and waste crisis, that's why we need regulation on this stuff. Um, It's wreaking havoc in the environment. It's increasingly showing up, you know, in our bodies. Um, And so we really do need the strong regulation to reduce the amount of plastic uh, in our lives. And that can leak into the environment. Yeah, but plastic's easy. Plastic's convenient. Plastic is waterproof. Plastic is plastic is just so simple. So we, in order, if this is going to be effective, it's going to hurt. I mean, yeah, you know, we've definitely gotten used to the to the disposable, you know, single use lifestyle. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing you know folks across the country and around the world really embrace reuse and refill. Um, and there's some really amazing initiatives to try to eliminate, um, you know, single-use packaging in all its forms and switch to reusable and refillable packaging. And, you know, it's not that long ago that, you know, our ancestors did rely on more of that concept, the, the refill and reuse. Um, it's fairly recent that we've kind of moved to this disposal-centric model. So, you know, I'm, I'm confident that we can kind of retrain ourselves. But, you know, again, it's like it's up to the government to invest in this transition for us to invest in infrastructure that's centered on reuse and refill. And then it's up to the big corporations to switch their business practices to, you know, only offer us stuff that is healthier and more sustainable. Okay, maybe I should have asked this question right off the top. And I know it's a simplistic question. What's wrong with plastic? Plastic uh, is made from fossil fuels, so from extraction all the way through to disposal, and even actually once it's pollution, it emits harmful greenhouse gases, so it's contributing to the climate crisis, Um, but also, you know, the the plastic um, that is found in different types of packaging and other materials contains toxic additives um, that is not healthy for us or for the environment. Um, It's, when it goes into the environment, it doesn't, you know, biodegrade, it, it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. And those pieces are able to travel uh, further distances through water, for example, absorb other toxins, and then animals eat that and it travels up the food chain. Um, so it really, once it's in the environment, it's very difficult to actually properly clean up. Um, and it's having really devastating impacts on wildlife, particularly um, marine wildlife. It's one of the most uh, striking facts that always sticks with me is that nine of 10 seabirds um, has ingested plastic. Wow. And often those interactions are fatal. Yeah. So, you know, we really need to, um, because we can't really clean it up once it's in the ocean, we really need to prevent it from 
And a lot of us, a lot of us hear the problem with plastic in the oceans. And so people in Toronto say, well, you know what? Good thing I'm not near any oceans. However, I know the U of T has a group that right now is trying to really, really highlight the plastic problem in Lake Ontario. We have the Great Lakes here. It doesn't matter where you are, you are near some sort of watershed. Exactly. And it's true, the oceans get more attention, but uh, the Great Lakes um, microplastic pollution is a huge problem in the Great Lakes. And, um, you know, the rivers flowing into it, the Don River, uh, you know, is the big one. If you go to the mouth of the Don River, you'll see a lot mm-hmm. of plastic pollution flowing into the lakes. Um, and, you know, that's true around the world. So, you know, again, that's why we really need to keep it out of the environment because just because most things flow into the ocean, that's where a lot of it is ending up. But really, we're seeing it all through our landscapes now, unfortunately. So while we do wait for more government action, all of us can do our part and at least think twice as we're in the, in the store, you know, can I get something that, that is without plastic and I bring my own reusable uh, containers? A lot of stores will allow you to do that. So uh, it, it's sometimes it's up to us as well to, to think. Definitely, you know, and it, it really has a big impact, you know, when you go to your local grocery store or, you know, your favorite restaurant or coffee shop saying that you really want them to switch to reusables and refill systems really does have an impact because they know that this is on customers' radar. Um, But, you know, encouraging them to make that move can help move us all in the right direction. All right. Sarah King, head of the Oceans and Plastics Campaign at Greenpeace Canada, has been talking to me from Vancouver. Thank you for this. Thanks so much. When we come back, Granny Flats, they're all the rage. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Granny Flats, affordable housing options to keep your family close. Jim Lang takes us inside the backyard suite. Well, as anyone knows, trying to find a place to live is getting tougher and tougher in Ontario, in Canada. But someone's trying to do something about it and thrilled to be joined by Francois Abbott, who's an architect and owner of Toronto's Fabrication Studio, and talking about something that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the future, garden suites and laneway housing. And this is something really important, I think, to help solve the housing crisis. Francois, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I know my family and I, we traveled to Europe a number of years ago, and we saw something very similar in a lot of European communities, and it feels like now we're catching the wave. People don't understand, what exactly is a garden suite, and how can it help the housing crisis? Well, yeah, so that's a, a great question. Um, and you'll notice in Europe that in cities, there's a high level of density. If you look at a block, the block is very much filled up, where when you look at a Toronto city block... There are a lot of holes in, in, in the fabric of them. They're not very dense, so people tend to have to travel very far or, or you know, end up moving to high-rise buildings. Um, what Toronto's trying to do now is present this new housing typology. It's similar to a laneway house, but with no laneway. So it's called a garden suite, and it's essentially a secondary dwelling in the backyard of an existing house. Well, I, I'm, this is amazing that we're doing this interview, Francois, because my wife and I are talking about this very thing, wondering about our kids who are young adults now, and we have quite mm-hmm. a big 
parcel of land in the backyard. And we're thinking, we were thinking we would like to build a garden suite for just her and I, as we get older, to live on the same property. So it's great that this is something that's coming to be, and a lot of municipalities are changing the bylaws to allow it. Yeah, well, it's kind of nice because, as you know, um, housing is becoming increasingly unaffordable, and people have to leave, or they're forced to leave the neighborhoods they grew up in. Uh, this allows for people to kind of age in place, allow for family to, you know, live in, in their yards or for, like, like you're saying, the primary dwellers to even retire in a smaller space while the kids use the, the primary house. It just gives people a lot more options. Now, um, for moving forward. I, I'm going to ask you, I mean, forgive me if I don't understand this, Francois, but from an architectural standpoint, say uh, we build a garden suite in the backyard of our property, can we tie into the existing water, sewer, and electricity and gas for the main house? Yeah, so that's kind of one of the requirements is you have to tie into the, the main house. It's kind of a nice thing, you know, it's a very intimate kind of intervention. Um, there is this relationship to the existing house. It's not like a laneway house where people have their own entrance to come in through the laneway. It's very much like you have to walk by the existing house. Yes. So you want to be ideally familiar with these people. There's a relationship there and you have to be calculated in the way you're going to share that space. Who sees what from what window? How do you share the backyard? Who has privacy under what condition? And that's kind of what Fabrication Studio is working with. These are the parameters that allow for us to design these interesting kind of buildings. Speaking of Francois Abbott, who's an architect in the owner of Toronto's Fabrication Studio, and and we're also seeing more in this country, which is borrowing from other countries. I see, Francois, the green roofs, green walls, uh, other ways to just change the environment for the better and also make a living space more adaptable for us in this new millennium. Yeah, I mean, it's a super exciting new kind of building, right? Toronto hasn't seen a new type of building in a long time. Uh, this is something that allows for green building, uh, accessible buildings. You know, we're not tying into these old existing structures. We get to really start in 2022 uh, with the technology and, and knowledge that we now have to build like the best possible compact dwellings. And, 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 you know, you brought up a good point about people having to move away. I think there's a lot of people, if they had their choice, they wouldn't commute as far as they do, but they eventually they throw their hands up in the air and go, what choice do I have? So if you can build a small livable space that you don't need a huge space because everything else is there, why not do it? Because it gives people options, whether they can have the smaller space closer to the city or the bigger space commuting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting um, if you get a certain amount of density, you have what's called like a walkable city. People can travel, they can use transit, they can use their bikes. They don't need to be driving on highways as much. And the more we can prevent that, the better on the urban scale. And it's also nice to be able to have, you know, the amenities of these neighborhoods. They won't really exist again, right? So how often are you going to get to see these, these big trees, these parks, these things? Um, they, they don't really exist um, elsewhere, right? You, they're already here. We might as well use them their full potential. And this is one way we can do that. Well said. And, and it's great to see that places like Barrie and Kitchener and other cities in Canada are following suit. It seems like there's a, a real groundswell of a idea that they, this is, could really help the housing crisis. And a lot of communities in the country are trying to follow Toronto's lead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, Toronto planning has done an amazing job at, uh, you know, writing and researching these bylaws, and it's going to make a huge change for a lot of people. And then for architects and designers, uh, it's it's a very exciting time. You know, it's a really interesting opportunity, and it's very meaningful for us. 
And, and my wife and I are fascinated by a show about tiny homes and HGTV. And I guess, in, in I guess following the lead of this, Francois, if people are doing these garden suites, it's maximizing the space within five or 600 square feet of a garden suite home. So you can have a footprint of up to about 600 uh, square feet. That's 60 square meters. And you can build two stories high. Oh. Uh, and then you can also use lawfully existing structures. So if you have something that's lawfully existing in your yard, you can actually use that to start. So there are a lot of options and you can build a beautiful space with these parameters. There's a lot of constraints. The bylaws can be hard to understand. And part of our role is to show people what their options actually are. We usually start with like by showing them massings in their own yard of what they can build. And there's a lot of options, more options than people assume there are. Well, for people interested, uh, you can check out Francois at his website, francoisabbott.com or uh, fabricationstudio.ca, Francois Abbott. Uh, Thank you very much for your insight. I think this is going to be something we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the next few years. And as a lot of people transition to this kind of home and this kind of housing, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Tina Cortez is next with emergency housing for young people, courtesy of Blue Door. Blue Door has been providing emergency housing for the homeless in York Region since 1982. Alex Cheng is the Director of Community Programs and joins us next with details about inclusion. Welcome back, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me. So what can you tell us about inclusion? What's that program all about? Yeah, inclusion is a program that has come about uh, through uh, really uh, a gap and a need that we've seen in uh, in York region for a long time now, and that's uh, service that's specific to 2S LGBTQ youth who are uh, at risk of or experiencing homelessness. Uh, so traditionally in our services, especially for youth, uh, uh, 2S LGBTQ youth have had to choose going into general population type of shelter services. Um, and, and one of the things that we found through the years uh, and through feedback as well is that one of two things. Nationally, there is an over-representation of uh, 2S LGBTQ youth among the youth who are experiencing homelessness. But we also see an under-representation of the same youth when it comes to access to emergency services like shelters and so forth. Um, and through the feedback of the youth, it turns out that, uh, that they don't feel safe in these type of services. So having a service like inclusion, which is transitional housing that is population-specific uh, and just for the 2S LGBTQ community, I think it's vital and it's something that the uh, door has embarked on and is the, uh, the only service of its kind at this moment. Why do you think this group specifically is in need? Right, I think um, I think it's because of the vulnerable age and uh, what the, um, what we see them experiencing in terms of uh, um, uh, in, in terms of navigating that growth and acknowledging their sexuality, their gender identity, and the safety issues that um, uh, that come with uh, with coming out really right to their friends, their fam, uh, their families, their the, uh, their close networks, and how you know uh, a lot a lot of those relationships can be jeopardized and uh, and can lead to uh, youth experience. In homelessness, and when we're talking about serving them, we need to not only serve, uh, uh, not only find solutions to house them, but we also uh, need to make sure that those solutions include that facet of, of looking at, you know, how do we, um, how do we help them grow, and how do we help them with this, uh, uh, with navigating what, uh, what, uh, you know, what this is uh, for them at this moment and, and beyond as well. So, without housing, without safe housing. 
What are these young people up against? Right. Without housing, it's uh, it's a really uh, it's really tough. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with safety because we see a lot of youth. If they're not accessing emergency shelters, for example, uh, they may be staying in unsafe situations. They may be uh, they may have left home and are now couch surfing um, and, uh, and choosing uh, to uh, perhaps uh, stay away from uh, from services like transitional housing or emergency housing because they don't uh, feel that the, that that they have that safety element. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with making sure that uh, that, uh, that we have services across the board here in the region that are population specific as well. And this is uh, this is a need that has uh, that has been identified uh, uh, through the last decade. I can remember. Right, we've had a few studies that have been conducted by Seneca College and by CAMH that have looked at uh, the breadth of the need here in York um, and uh, really the causality of why people um, uh, don't feel safe or or the pathways to homelessness for them as well. How does the program work? What services does inclusion provide? Well, inclusion, um, first and foremost, is a home environment. So what we've done with the program uh, when we first started it last year is that we leave the home in the community and are providing really a semi-independent space for up to four years. We have uh, someone with lived experience, uh, someone uh, that is part of the 12 LGBTQ community, uh, provide men- a peer mentorship to the program. Um, and for the most part, what we do is, um, uh, is work with the youth in this home environment to look at employment, education, uh, access to healthcare, um, uh, I think uh, system navigation, connection to the 2SLGBTQ community, and really with the ultimate goal of, uh, of, uh, uh, of perhaps walking with them on, the, on this pathway to, uh, uh, to independence and, uh, and housing on their own eventually. Um, is there an application process for the program? There is an application process for the program, and uh, you can get in touch uh, with us through our website or through social media. Uh, most people get in touch with us with, in our primary e- email, inclusion at bluedoor.ca. Um, one of the things that uh, I guess um, I want to acknowledge as well this year is that uh, when we first started the program last year, we were renting a home, and uh, 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 thanks to uh, the contribution from the North Pine Foundation, we were able to buy the home. Uh, just two months ago, uh, just ensuring that the program has long-term stability uh, in, uh, in ensuring that we're able to grow the program as well. That's fantastic news. One more time, where can listeners find out more or someone in need? How can they access the program? Yes, they can access the program by uh, uh, by connecting with us through our website, by connecting with us through social media, and we have a direct email for the program as well, uh, at, uh, inclusion at bluedoor.ca. That's I-N-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N at bluedoor.ca. Alex, thank you once again for your time. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.